Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is July the 14th, 2020. This is episode 2689 of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday. Tuesday is generally and will be today a Just Jack show, even though that's what we did yesterday instead of a feedback show. And we are calling today's show Critical Skills and Knowledge for the Coming Years. The truth is we should have called the show, and I may change it in the title, 12 Critical School Skills and Knowledge for the Coming Years. And the reason we didn't do that is when I started doing the show notes, I didn't know how many skills and knowledge areas I would go into. And as I wrote up the notes, it ended up being 12. So I titled it before um, I got there. So that's why we didn't have a number in it. And that's why you're probably, if you're looking at it in your podcast player or online or something like that, you're seeing the number 12 there, even though I didn't say it. Not that you care. Anyway, um, on that note, just a, a real quick little aside. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize all the ways that you can listen to the Survival Podcast. There's a lot of ways. Uh, we're on almost every podcast aggregator and service uh, that's available. And if you go to our subscribe page, not only can you sign up for the Daily Mail, so you get a daily email from us that tells you a little bit about what's been going on, including some behind-the-scenes stuff. And by the way, my emails that I send every day, people that are on the list can tell you this, they are text-based. There's no HTML, there's no special codes or anything like that. I do use tracking links, but I use Bitly for that. It's not anything invasive or anything. It just basically tells me how many people went to any given piece of content. Um, and so you can get the Daily Mail, but you can also see like all the ways that you can sign up, which includes things like iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Pandora, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Breaker, CastBox, Castro.fm, Himalaya, and some other things like some direct apps that we have available both for Android uh, and for iPhone. So we're available on all of those things. There's about one place that we're not, and I won't go into why, but we are not on iHeartRadio. Anything else, if you listen to podcasts on it, you can find us there. And if, you, uh, if you're thinking, what the hell is a, a breaker or a cast box or an overcast or something like that, you might find that one of these podcast services are very interesting to you. You might actually like using them rather than the native podcast app on iPhone or what have you. So maybe just by checking out all the places that were available, you'll find a new uh, podcast app and thereby new podcasts. I'm not a podcast uh, uh, miser. I don't think you should only be listening to me. I think that listening to one voice is probably a mistake. The reason I actually bring this up, though, is go take a look. And if you listen to us or would like to see us on any podcast service other than iHeartRadio uh, that's not listed there, let me know, and I'll see what I can do to get us in there or find out if we already are. Uh, being we've been around for 12 years, we have a quarter million listeners. We're one of the top podcasts in our category on iTunes, and uh, we are two-time winner of Podcast of the Year Award. It uh, just so happens that... Most of these new aggregating services either just pull stuff right out of iTunes or they go out and they acquire, uh, whether you know it or not, uh, all the top shows that have been around a while when they launch so that there's something there for people to find. And uh, we're in a ton of these things that I didn't even know existed. So anyway, with that, before we get into today's topic, which again, we're talking about the skills and mindset and knowledge you're going to need in the coming years because they're going to be years of dramatic flux. Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. Um, I love 
the fact that over the past few years I've really minimized a lot of things in my life. I've made my life more simplified right down to my EDC or my everyday carry. And the first place that I, I really did that was with uh, my wallet. Going from a billfold uh, to the Ridge wallet was one of the best choices I ever made. And I didn't really go out and consciously make it. Uh, a representative from Ridge Wallet got in touch with me about sponsoring the show. He said, I'll send you a couple of them. You try them, and then you let us know. And after about a month of carrying it, I was like, I got a sponsorship opening. You, you, you want it? And uh, we have a great relationship. We've been working together now for three years, and I have never gone back to my billfold. If you give Ridge Wallet a try, you'll see why. Not only is it a minimalist, minimalist wallet that just works better, it also prevents identity theft because, well, those RFID cards uh, that you have now, all your IDs, your credit cards, et cetera, they have these little RFID chips in them. And uh, if, you, if you encase that sucker in something like titanium, uh, you ain't getting it. You ain't getting it. You're not going to walk around and wand your ass and get your information. Next up, we're talking about titanium, which is a really cool metal. How about the precious metals, silver and gold? Uh, silver and gold are an incredible store of value. They are the anonymous form of wealth. They are the wealth that you can transfer down to your heirs with nobody needing to know about it. They are wealth that you can transfer between individual parties with nobody needing to know about it. And they have a multi-thousand-year history of being used as money and never being worth nothing. Uh, I don't even with some of the unforeseen crap that's coming right now, some of the real turmoil, I, I am not the guy that says go out and, and put all your money in silver and gold, but 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold is the advice I've been giving for 12 years now. I doubt that it'll change anytime soon. The reason you use JM Bullion, they support the show, and they have for about nine years. Uh, they give a discount to MSB members. No one does a good discount in silver and gold. The margins are too thin. JM does that. Uh, they have better pricing even without the discount than Monix, Atmex, and other big silver houses. They're always honest. They don't lie. They don't have uh, G. Gordon Liddy or somebody like that on TV uh, trying to f get you to buy. Uh, I can talk to the president and owner of the company if there's a problem. There hasn't been one in like seven of the last nine years. Um, but when there's been an occasional hiccup back in the beginning, I actually helped them work through it. They were very uh, receptive. They were actually very thankful that I gave them feedback they might not have otherwise got. They're just a great company to do business with, and all their orders ship free, at least all orders over $100. And frankly, friends, if you're buying precious metals and you're buying less than $100 worth, buy from a local coin shop. Really, if you're going to be buying online and having stuff shipped, uh, you know, save up to you ready to make a hundred dollar and up investment. So I don't know why if you're going to buy online silver and gold, you'd buy anywhere other than Jam Bullion. With that, let's get into this. Um, I just want to start out. You know, I've released a series. I've started a series of articles on eight megatrends that are going to drastically cause flux and, and probably cast us directly into or make worse the recession that our governments have created a self-inflicted wound of, we, we could even possibly be look, being looking at a, a depression going forward. I don't know that that's the case. I, I was asked today if I, if I think that uh, we're going to have a depression, because when I left for vacation, I said, the decisions our ass clown leaders will make in the next 60 days will determine that. We're about halfway into that, and some's been really stupid, and some's not been as stupid, and they certainly could have been more stupid, so we may end up with just a really bad recession now. But one way or another, this is, this is going to suck. And in, in those eight trends I'm outlining, um, I, I'm going to make a compelling case for you why the next 10 years, the next 10 years of your life are going to be full of more flux than any living human being has ever seen. More change technologically, uh, more change from a day-to-day -day how we live our lives. And, 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 I mean, 
that's saying something because the change over the 90s, the 20, you know, the 2000s and the teens were all three of those were pretty amazing. They really were. Um, this is going to be far more disruptive. And, and the big thing is that, as I've been saying, this was already going to happen. These eight megatrends were things that were already in motion and already beginning going into 2020. Um, you know, I, I've talked about real estate, for instance. And one of the things that I put out in the article that came out today that's on uh, primary and secondary education, I think you're really going to want to check that article out and share with your friends, is that in December... Real estate experts were forecasting a drastic drop in property taxes and property values in the same major cities that are taking it the hardest right now from COVID. But that was in, in December before anybody knew what a COVID was. It wasn't going into their forecast. And they were already see all of these things. Homeschooling is, is what the article's on about today and how moving a significant number of students, just like we talked about in yesterday's show, out of primary and secondary uh, education into a homeschool environment has a drastic uh, economic impact and then magnifies the first one, the real estate problem. Uh, as as parents, if you're, I'm going to homeschool my kids, I don't care what school district I live in, so why am I paying $20,000 in property taxes? would just be one way. Uh, teachers losing jobs and needing to move to more affordable housing would be another way. It just keeps cascading from there. And what I want to put out today, because I'm not the gloom and doom guy. I never have been. I've been talking about survival and preparedness. I've been in the niche that is gloom and doom since 2008. It's 2020. It's over 12 years. And in those 12 years, I've never been the guy that's the gloom and doom guy. I've always been the solutions-oriented, optimistic, it's going to be okay, but be prepared for when it isn't guy. And I have to say that I think of, of just about anybody in this niche, I might be the most optimistic person that there is. So when I'm going to come out with eight things, some of which I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of, getting your children out of the, the beast system that is the educational indoctrination government school system. I, I, I've been an advocate for that for about as long as this show's been on the air. I've been advocating it. I've supported it. I have encouraged it. For all those years. So it's not like, oh my God, I can't believe Johnny and Susie are going to get educated at home. That's, that's, but I, I, have to opt, I have to realistically look at what the economic impact of that is. Teachers as a segment, if we look at the school system as an employer, so the entire primary, so K-12 education as a single employer, is, is one of the largest employment sectors of professionals in the country. It's a $700 billion industry. $700 billion with a B. That's more than half a trillion dollars. And it's going to drastically change. That's going to hurt economically. And as I go through these things, as you might imagine, automation is another one. And automation was one that had tremendous disruption, but a lot of opportunity. And now you're going to accelerate it because of what has happened with COVID. And all of the other trends, as they all cascade each other, they all force each other to accelerate. And that's good, long-term, bad, mid- and short-term. But the upshot, and that's why I wanted to bring this to you today, is that it's all going to spell opportunity. Now, it's kind of like saying, well, this really big guy over there, see that six foot four inch 280-pound bodybuilder? He's going to come over to you, 
And let's imagine you're not 6'4", 280 if you are. If, you, if you're an average guy. And if you're 6'4", 280, then imagine a person that's as much bigger than you as you are than the average guy is the guy I'm talking about. Okay, That person is going to come over and he, first he's going to start off by kicking you in the nuts. Then he's going to beat the living crap out of you. And then he's going to pick you up and throw you down some stairs. But you're going to be okay. You're going to live. But it's really going to suck. And you might get a few of these beatings like this from this big gargantuan guy over the next years. But what I'm saying is if you figure out how to mitigate and properly take the lessons of your beating, you have tremendous opportunity to be a better person and a more well-off person in the end. That's the only way I can kind of balance those two. And some people... Are going to be the, the, that if you're if you're really prepared, you're really well adapted, you've been paying attention to what we do the whole time. You're going to be that quick little jujitsu guy that when that 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 giant comes after you, you're not going to kick his ass. You're just going to kind of use a, a, a real quick pain compliance hold, and you're going to just be gone. Like he's going to turn around, I want to kick your ass, and like where do you go? Oh, I'll kick this guy's ass instead, right? Like so, some of you are going to be really nimble with this. No one's going to fight this. Right? This is not even like a six foot four two eighty. This is like freaking you know ten Goliaths, and, and and you're a little girl. You can win the fight if you're ready, and you can survive the fight if you're only partially ready. But you can't change what's going to happen. I should say eight Goliaths, right? But I want to when I get done with the series on here's all the ways the giant's going to kick you in the balls. It's going to be well. Here's all the opportunities. I'm going to do a series of articles on the opportunities. So I wanted to kind of, like, since I'm doing the gloom and doom thing right now, because I have to, I feel I feel morally obligated to tell you this stuff, right? And I've been telling you this stuff, but I also feel morally obligated to tell you, well, since our government is stupid and our government has treated this whole thing completely ass-backwards from the way that it should have been, and they've totally royally screwed you and everybody else, including themselves, It's all going to happen faster now, and it's going to hurt more. But I want you to be optimistic and thinking about the future. On that, before I get into the, the, the steps, right, I want to remind you that this week, new podcast is coming. It's all about solutions. Unloose the goose. Where our, uh, our icon is the agorist flag with a pissed-off Canadian goose on it. And instead of don't tread on me like the Gadsden flag, it says, leave us alone. Leave us alone. But see, our group, we do not seek to be alone. We just want to be left alone to pursue our dreams. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to demonstrate how to intellectually have a good conversation about the most complex problems with six very outspoken personalities that all have their own views of how to do this With the only common thing really binding us together is that whatever people come up with is probably better than what the state comes up with. And so if you really want to kind of move forward with a lot of stuff we're going to talk about today, be part of Unloose the Goose. You can find us at UnlooseTheGoose.com. We're already in Stitcher Radio. We are already in iTunes. I'm sure we're in some other place. I know we're in Overcast. Um, and uh, there's like one episode up there, and it's episode zero. But tonight we record at least the first episode, maybe two. We haven't, I don't know if we've worked that out yet. We're, this is a kind of we're figuring out as we go thing. I came up with this idea, put everybody together, got it all rolling, and then went on vacation for three weeks. But uh, I'm back, 
and you will hear from us this week. I think that episode will probably go live uh, tomorrow or something like that. I, I don't know. But you can get over to UnloosedTheGoose.com and subscribe. And I'm telling you, man, this is the podcasting supergroup. So let's talk about some of the stuff we'll be talking about on Unloose the Goose and, and the things we're going to be talking about today. The skills and knowledge and actions, I think, are going to be vital in the coming years. If you're going to take advantage of this turmoil, then you're going to have to have skill and knowledge and mindset. And I don't think anybody's going to be shocked when I tell you one of the first ones. And I want to be clear. You don't have to do all these. I think it makes sense for everybody to have a little bit of understanding of all of them. But you can be really good at three or four or fives. And then you'll be able to adapt to and figure out what you need. And you'll be able to find others that are good at these other things that you don't necessarily want to do. But if you don't at least understand them, you won't know who's good at them. Because, you know... Marketing is where you always say you're good at what you do. I mean, if you're here with marketing, you know, we totally suck. But come buy from us anyway. You need to be able to evaluate the quality of what you're dealing with, right? So the first one is growing food. I th And I think that's the one is the most universal. And I'm not saying that everybody needs a garden that's going to provide 50% or 80% or 100% of their food. And that everybody needs to be raising chickens and geese and ducks and stuff, or you know, doing hydroponics or aquaponics or whatever. I, I don't believe that. I don't think that's necessarily um, practical. There's different reasons that different people will participate at different levels, but I think that everybody should at least have, you know, a couple little garden beds or maybe a hydroponic system in their home. Uh, or at least an herb garden, or maybe if you live in a climate especially where you don't have to do a lot of work to get things like fruit trees and bushes and shrubs and vines to grow, you know, just landscape your, your property with things that produce things that are edible. Um, encourage your lawn, instead of being a Bermuda grass lawn or a Raleigh St. Augustine lawn, to be an herbal lawn that has a lot of medicinal uh, and edible components to it. I mean, you can have a lawn that literally is a salad. Uh, there are a lot of things that people work really hard to get out of their lawn that I, I only wish that my climate and my soil uh, allowed me to get more into. We get uh, we used to have a little bit of chickweed around here in around the edges uh, in the uh, in the springtime, and I love chickweed. It's a great uh, it's a great herb, and it's it's great to use uh, as an edible. And with the ducks and the chickens, there is no more chickweed. You know, you can figure out why they they pretty much devour it wherever it shows up. I don't get any anymore. Uh, we have lamb's quarter that grows. I even let like one lamb's quarter that volunteered in my garden. I let it grow this year. Like, ah, oh, it's going to go to seed. No, I, I keep chopping and dropping it, and it keeps sending up shoots. You know, if you have lamb's quarter is a weed volunteering in your yard, somewhere along the edge you can let a couple of them grow, and you can just keep, once they get established, and they get a nice big woody annual is what they are, uh, and, and you kind of cut them down halfway, then all the new shoots that they send up are edible. Plantain is something people consider weed. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's edible, and it's a great healing herb. Like, so when I say growing food, I don't necessarily mean that everybody needs to have you know, a full-on garden or a group of gardens the way that I do and do aquaponics and do hydro and do all the stuff that I do. One of the reasons I do so many different things is to figure out what works so I can be more educational. But do something. Do something. One of the biggest reasons when this whole COVID craziness started that I was like, just relax. It was easy for me to say. And I had to occasionally pull myself back in line with, hey, just because you've taught people to do this, I mean, they've done it. And they're freaked out now. But I mean, like, food? Really? And three deep freezers full of meat, and I got more food growing in my property than I can ever use 
Plus, I've still got food stored from the year before and the year before and the year before. So I'm good. Like, that was my mindset. And there is very few things in the world that will create security for people the way that security in their food will. If you look at the parts of the world that have the greatest turmoil and trouble and poverty and problem, the number one thing that leads a nation or a region or a group of people down that road is not knowing whether or not they can feed their children tomorrow. Generally speaking, if you know you can feed your children tomorrow, things are pretty stable. So growing food is huge. Now next up is cooking and storing food. Let's start with the storing of food first. Storing food is a multidisciplined activity. I have an article I wrote back in 2008, still on the website. It's called The Holistic Way to Store Food. And it's all the different ways that we can store food. And those include things like just buying food that's storable, copy canning and such. It includes things like creating storables. And we'll talk more about that in a second. That would be where, you know, we have a bunch of green beans in the garden, so we flash freeze them, blanch and flash freeze, or we can or we dehydrate. Or maybe we even go buy a bunch of green beans from a farmer at the farmer's market, and then we're able to store those. It also includes things like... Um, running a good inventory so that you're rotating your food. There's a lot of actual skill to simply even just having a deep pantry. But one of the real reasons that it's necessary that you, you can take it beyond just, I'm going to have a food storage program where I organize and store my food and actually go from not only being, let's say, a collector of food, but to be a producer of Not just of food, like in a garden, but a producer of storables. So right now I have eggplant coming out of my ears. But unless I develop a solution to store that eggplant, there's no way I could possibly eat as much eggplant as the six plants are making for me right now. It can't, I could eat eggplant until like eggplant is coming out of my ears, my eyes, and, and the back of my neck. And I, I would never keep up with the production that we have right now. I've actually overplanted eggplant. The only way that makes sense is if I know, well, you can, you can actually dehydrate eggplant. It's actually really good that way. When you rehydrate it and cook it into soups and stews and stuff, it's awesome. I, I didn't know that until this year. I'm like, well, I, the reason I don't grow a lot of eggplant, I found out I could store it. And if you're going to start growing food, then you're going to have at some point in the year a surplus. And unless you live in somewhere like the tropics or the subtropics, it truly enables year-round production without heroic means of like heated greenhouses and things like that or growing indoors, you're going to have to take advantage of your, your, your time of surplus. And the only way you can do that is be a good ant or a good squirrel and put the food up. So you've got to learn how to store it. On top of this, though, cooking is, is a massive skill lacking in America today. Uh, it is not only important to me that I know how to cook and my wife know how to cook, but that my grandchildren know how to cook. We've been working on their ability to cook. My, my grandson right now, if he wants uh, over-easy eggs with some crispy bacon and some toast, he just goes and gets stuff, cooks it. He's nine. He's been doing it for two years. So he's been doing it since he was seven. There's grown-ass adults today can't make bacon, eggs, and toast. Think about that. Like, that's, that's, that's both scary. It's also an opportunity. Because I think there's going to be a tremendous agorist opportunity going forward, and a lot of that might not be producing food, but value-adding to food. 
There, there, there's a lot of college cottage food laws around the country. And if you wanted to put together something, like I've talked before about doing like a micro CSA, where you have like 20, 50 customers that get a box of food or a basket of food or a tub of food or whatever every other week, right? And a lot of people think, well, then I'm going to go out and build a greenhouse and do all this stuff. You know, really, there's probably local producers right now that you could form a cooperative with. And, okay, this is my lettuce guy. It basically, you know, I can go to that producer and say, look, I'm going to go out and sell this on the other end. Can you commit to having 25 packages of lettuce this big every every week? And he says yes, and you know he has the capacity to do it. And you've developed the oversight and, and mindset to where you can evaluate that he's not full of shit. Okay, then you let that's done. If I can make any money on that and do no work, that's the way to go. Well, the way that we can extend that is things like, well, what if there's a a, a different tea, a little jar of tea, uh, some herbal tea every week in the box, or some sort of other product. One of the, the gals I uh, met. Uh, at one of the trade shows around here, had a business like this doing a lot of prepared items under cottage food law. And one was tortillas, and the tortillas had amaranth mixed into them. They were kind of a standard tortilla, but they had a big boost in protein and nutrition. She grew amaranth, and she dehydrated the leaves, crumbled them up, and then she was buying you know, organic flour to make the tortillas with. But that way, there was something grown in her backyard that was in that product. Cooking opens up all of that, and then straight up, we're going to need money. And in the coming years, you're going to need more money than you think you need. It's going to be harder than most people are willing to accept. And so you can save a lot of money if you're a good cook. And if you start developing not only the ability to cook, to cook really good where you prefer to eat home than eat out, you can eat better, and nutrition is going to be a big, important part of things, too, that we'll cover in a bit. Additionally, people that learn how to cook learn how to cook and portion so that we can then cook and put away meals for the future. So now we're adding food storage back into it, but we're also simplifying our lives so we have more time to get our side hustle on, see the education of our children, and enjoy our lives, even in this flux. Cooking has always been huge with me. going to be more important than ever. Next, building, design, construction, and estimating skills, all in one. Okay, so you get some bonuses here because of how much I'm cramming into one. There, there is going to be a need throughout America, especially if you add the migration pattern where people are leaving the cities and stuff, moving to smaller towns out in the country and stuff like that, and they're getting more freedom in their life. If you're going to be part of this migration pattern, if you've made a deal with your boss and you're living in L.A. or Tallahassee or Atlanta or uh, any major market, and you're going to move as part of your deal with your employer to now work remotely, please do not move somewhere with lots of restrictions and with a HOA and all this other crap. Move somewhere that you can do whatever you want to do, even if right now you're not thinking about doing a lot. You don't know what's going to come and what, what you're going to want in your future. I, I am so blessed because I chose a place that's unincorporated. I can do almost anything on my property, and there's nothing anybody can do to stop me. I mean, there's, there's no building codes here. There's no HOA here. There's no town. There's no city. There's only the county, and they do not have time to worry about my aviary or my aquaponics system or my pond. Like, they just don't have time for that. 
literally do not and aren't going to pretend that they do. If my neighbor called and complained about any of this stuff, they would they would literally be told by my sheriff's department to go screw. That opportunity only means something if you have the ability to do something with it, to create these projects, to build these things, to build these systems. And I'm not saying that everything you do needs to be done by you, right? But if you do some projects and you develop estimating skills, you should, like, I will make sure that by the time my grandson, quote-unquote, graduates, right, from high school, that in addition to the curriculum that he'll get from the program we're putting him in, I guarantee you he'll be able to fire up Excel and do a takeoff for a construction project and say, this is how much this is going to cost. This is how many man hours are going to go into it. Here's a Gantt chart of those man hours. If you don't know what a Gantt chart is, look it up. Okay, like I Basically be able to PM a job even if he's the only person on it. PM means project manager job. If you can do that, then it's really easy for you when you're hiring help to know kind of about what you should be paying. And it's easy for you to determine that the organization presenting you with the project, if it's a big project, knows what the hell they're doing and you should give them the job in the first place. And when you're able to speak their language and be reasonable, like I'll, I tell contractors flat out, I want, like, I've had some, some smaller jobs where contractors are like basically buying, like you go buy the materials and I'm like, no, nah, I really don't want to. And they're like, well, I can pick it up and they're going to try. I'm like, put 20% on it. I don't expect you to do that for free. You know, and the reason I'm not ordering it so it's sitting here for you is because there's some things you're going to have to kind of design on the fly. I understand that. And boy, when you're working with a guy and you can talk to him that way and he understands that you understand, they bend over backwards for you. Because there might come a time where you need something done and there's two other people that need something done. And I tell you, my handyman and contractors that I've worked with, if there's any way I can get priority, I'm getting priority. And it's a big part of it. And I'm not going to get ripped off. And that way I know that I'm not getting ripped off. I'm always fair with them. So the estimating, the materials list, all that is good for you. But it's also good for your interactions with people that are doing the same thing to provide you with the service. It also makes you valuable. There's going to be all kinds of side hustle businesses and things like that involving this type of thing as more and more people have to rely on somebody else to help them with something they've never done before. To the point where you can literally create, if you're good at this, you can literally create your own opportunities by simply reaching out to contractors that specialize in different ways, finding the best ones in your area and saying, I'll give you work for X percent. And if you're good at estimating and, you're, and you can take their numbers and make them work with your system and hand them a job and they know when, when, when Bill brings me a job, I'm going to make money on it, they're going to be stupid. If they don't want to deal with you, their competitors will. So it's not just the hard skill of being able to build and design and do projects, but the estimating skills, the project management skills are extremely valuable. And the skill of project management translates itself across multiple disciplines, far beyond construction, project work, etc. Next up, crypto skills. And I do not just mean the ability to spend, save, and use Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. That in, indeed is one thing that I, I mean. And I think that everybody should have at least a little bit of cryptocurrency, know how cryptocurrency works, be able to send and receive cryptocurrency. Because I think as more and more gray markets emerge, more and more reliance on cryptocurrency will come. And the people that can 
will have an advantage over the people that can't. So this isn't about buying Bitcoin, waiting for it to go to the moon, and buying a Lamborghini. Um, I think those days are by and large over. But to use the currency for the utility that was originally intended, which is to be your own bank and operate outside their system. And there's going to be people that you have opportunities to do business with that are going to only want to take various different cryptocurrencies. And I would know how to do that now. But going beyond cryptocurrency, I mean cryptography and crypto thinking as a whole. Uh, the whole package crypto savage, I guess, would be the way that Vin Armani would put it. And communications and networking. You know, just switching from something like the messaging service that's native to your iPhone to something like we're using for the Goose Group, like Telegram, that's end-to-end encrypted. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the conversation you're having with your Aunt Selma needs to be encrypted, but you might as well. Since it's so easy to do, and it's in fact free to do, you might as well. And as you start developing groups and relationships, there's nothing wrong with keeping your conversations with other people private. And I'm not saying that none of these things can ever be hacked or gone into or whatever, but for instance, one of the things I love about Telegram is you can wipe out the entire conversation and it's gone to where you can't get it back even if you want it back. That's nice to have. And I think we need to stop using because it, it, it's even if we don't mean it that way, it's been made to sound nefarious. And I'm not talking about an image thing here. I'm talking about even a mindset for ourselves, the word secret. I don't keep it secret, but just private. I think that every single person, in fact, even our Constitution says this, has a right to privacy in their communications, their effects, their papers, etc. And whether I'm discussing something that, let's say, is gray market, or I'm discussing what to name my cat with somebody, I just don't think it's the government's business. And again, I'm not saying that none of these technologies can be penetrated. I'm saying, we're back to, they ain't got time for that. Right? I mean, data is managed through mega analysis. And if you get outside of the place that's easy to analyze, that alone gives you a lot of privacy. And in working in these networks, you'll find more and more people that you can rely on and trust. And I think the time for building things like John Bush calls freedom cells uh, and close niched groups where outsiders don't get in until somebody vets the outsider. The time to do that was yesterday, but it's like planting a tree. The best time to do that was 10 years ago. The next best time is today. The next best time after that is tomorrow. So I would start working with communications and networking technologies that are encrypted beyond just cryptocurrency. And I would start thinking in the mindset of private groups. And let's be honest, a private group on Facebook is better than a public one for some things, but it's not private. We still have Facebook interfering with our communications and what we post in the private TSP group. We still have occasional Karens and Kyles that get in, and, and I guess they don't know what they're getting involved with, but then they want to go bitch to Facebook about a communication they didn't like instead of blocking it or leaving the group. Sometimes they leave the group, make a giant announcement, and still are a pain in the ass complaining about it on the way out. Um, when we look at some of the other technologies that are out there, that becomes irrelevant. And 
they're ideal for smaller groups of people as well, and I think we need to start moving towards smaller groups. With On Loose the Goose, one of the things that I plan on kind of bringing to the community as we build that community is, yeah, we have a Telegram channel for just us, uh, the, the six uh, hosts of the show for now, and maybe we'll create one that's more of a, a mass group that anybody can join. But what I really want for people to do is find people that they have like ideals with and then break off. And, and little cells of 5, 6, 20 people are incredibly powerful. It creates a decentralized organization. And as we've seen in many different ways, decentralized organizations are extremely resilient. So that's something else. Next up, and this will be something like you'll be like, really? Like you would have now thought that I would bring this here because it sounds very corporate, I guess. But statistical analysis, critical thinking, and research. I think that there's never been a time in history where you you can rely less on the government and the media than today. As bad as it's been in the past, it's worse today. And this brings me to what I'm going to call the COVID minute. Says I don't want to do any more shows really dedicated to COVID and trying to correct the hysteria anymore. Uh, once in a while, I'm going to bring one minute of COVID information into the show. So, so here goes three stories um, that you probably won't hear on TV, and if you do, it'll be taken out of context or presented in a way designed to make you afraid rather than to be the good news that it is. Uh, number one, Zero Hedge had an article, one of my favorite yellow journalist sites on the planet, uh, and that's out of alternative media, said MSN that 50% of all COVID patients have heart disease or heart damage. Well, 50% of, the headline was 50% of all COVID patients have heart damage, and of course they meant patients that needed advanced medical care. When you read the article... You think the headline means that after you have COVID, there's a 50% chance you'll have heart damage. No, it was that people that have COVID bad enough had pre-existing heart problems. So if you don't have one of those, you're already significantly less likely to have any problem from COVID if you should happen to get it. Good news presented as bad news. Uh, next up, very back-of-the-fold story for the Internet. You really have to look for it if you want to find it. 68% of people in the New York City area now are estimated to have had COVID. 68%. 68% of 8 million freaking people. It makes the death rate, even in New York, which was terrible, infinitesimally small. And it's why you don't have hardly any COVID going on there anymore because, well... It's agreed upon that 70% is probably the point of herd immunity for just about anything. Now, it gets even better, though they won't tell you this. Um, the real number is about 20 to 30% to the point by the time you've had that many people infected, the people that get infected after that are going to be the people that are less susceptible and your death rate's going to plummet while your case rate goes up. That's clear when you read what actually happened, though they sure don't present it that way. It's like, oh my God, 68%. And one more today, and normally these are going to be, these COVID minutes will be true minutes, will be one. A data is beautiful um, piece is now on Reddit released today, showing that what I've been saying all along is true, and that is that not only is there a correlation, between nutritional deficiency and severe cases of COVID. But vitamin D is more so than we've ever thought. By simply taking the data and putting it together, and you look at normal versus insufficient versus deficient with vitamin D, that one I'll make sure I put in the show notes for you today. I, the graph says it all. The graph says it all. Data is, in fact, beautiful. You'll hear none of those. And so what does that have to do with the point 
of statistical analysis, critical thinking, and research. Put COVID in the trash for a minute. The media refuses to do its job. So you have to do, if you want to be informed, you must do the media's job. I keep getting people, well, what media source can I use that I can trust? And the answer is you can't trust any of them. They are all coming from a point of an agenda, and you have to do your own research to verify the claim or at least understand the claim. Because often, the zero hedge piece is perfect. 50% of all COVID patients have heart damage. I mean, Jesus. Holy crap. But when you read the article, they don't lie. They're, they're very clear about it. What it actually means is people that had... Like when they say patients, they mean like hospital patients, like bad enough to go to the hospital. Half of them had heart damage before they got COVID. That sucks if you have heart damage, but it knows you know that you need to be really, really careful. And if you don't, it's one less thing to worry about. It's a little bit like, hey, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Now you had the D thing, like, but if you don't go verify that, if you just read headlines and listen to people ranting and raving and listen to the lunatics on TV. You can't adapt to the situation. Well, it doesn't, it's not just COVID. It's everything. It's everything. Basic rule of journalism. If I have a source that gives me a piece of information, as a journalist, if I'm going to publish that, I need to publish it with a very clear disclaimer. Right now I have only one source, and therefore this is unconfirmed. I can even say this source has proven to be highly reliable in the past. But I have to state, this is not confirmed. They don't do it anymore. They run with it like it's a proven fact, like Jesus showed up and gave it to them on a stone tablet. To report a story as confirmed, and to come across as though it's confirmed, whether you say it or not, the rules of journalism are simple. This used to be taught in school. You need two independent sources, and somebody reprinting somebody else's shit is not in it. You need this skill today. You need the skill. I learned this skill in grade school. Journalists with vaulted college degrees from places like Columbia can't pull this shit off today. It's amazing. Statistical analysis. Boy, I'll tell you what. If you can do statistical analysis, you see through bullshit fast. And you see when they tell you, why? Eh, really, no. And then when you hear, when you hear, don't worry, you're like, oh, yeah, really, yeah. And it's amazing. Once you can do statistical analysis... You also start to have pattern recognition of, gee, when the media says to worry about something, even if it's worrisome, it's nowhere near as bad as they make it out to be. And when they tell you, it's not happening, don't worry about it, there's nothing to see here, it's fine. That's when you better worry. I used to have a really stupid friend. His name was Mike. We called him Mikey. We also nicknamed him Ears because he had these giant cabbage ears. Right? This guy was borderline retarded without actually being the, what that word used to mean. Okay, This guy was dumb. And whenever he said, my, I had a, another really good friend named Heath, and, and Heath and I were probably the only good friends this guy had. So even though we kind of picked on our own a little bit, and he was dumb, we looked out after him. Right, and we we weren't mean to the guy, you know. We 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 involved him, and like the rest of the group, when they would get, hey hey, back off, Mikey, you know, he's come here, he's special, just come on, don't pick. He's got enough trouble. Don't don't be that way. So I don't want anything like we were mean to the guy or anything. But when he would turn to to us and he'd go, don't worry about it. Me and Heath would look at each other like, holy shit, this is bad. We got to do something now or we're all going to be in trouble or somebody's going to get hurt or Mikey's going to go to jail. Like we knew when he said not to worry about it, it was like, rant, rant, rant. 
That's the media today. The media is as dumb as Mikey was, as ears was. The media is a special child with a cork on a fork, wearing a helmet, eating crayons. You can't rely on them for anything. Even when they're telling the truth, you better verify it before you make any decisions in your life on it. What I saw today was a piece out that said, all these stories about people moving to the country from the big cities are nonsense. Okay, then why are rents on their ass? Why are defaults on their ass? Why are tax revenues on their ass? And don't say COVID, because you still have to pay your property tax. And most people pay it as part of their mortgage. And there's a there's an escrow that it's paid out of during the interim. And you have to go in significant default before tax revenues fall because of your mortgage default. Because people are leaving. People are abandoning. That's why. That's why. There's, it's literally, they're like Baghdad Bob. Do you remember Baghdad Bob? When the U.S. invaded Iraq? Right? There are no Americans coming. And you could see like the freaking Bradleys rolling in the streets, blowing shit up behind them. It's not true. You know, I mean, that was that's the media today. They, they're hysterical about things that are a problem but not huge. They over-accentuate everything that they want you to be afraid of. And when they tell you there's no problem, oh, there's no problem with these peaceful protesters, and you're watching behind them a city burn. If you can't do statistical analysis, critical thinking, and research on your own, you are literally their bitch. And you're going to have to make some tough decisions in the next few years. So you better be able to become informed even through their barrage of bullshit. But you can start out with, assume everything is a lie until you can verify otherwise. And that is literally how you have to look at the media right now. I'm not saying it is a lie. Assume it's a lie until you can verify otherwise. Trust nothing. That doesn't mean ad hominem attack a thing. Ad hominem is, well, it's from CNN, so clearly it's bullshit. You know what? Your logic is valid, but it may not be. And generally, things that come from the media today are a blending of complete and total steaming bullshit and truth. And they get mixed together. And then they take the data and they present it from an angle that leads you to the conclusion they want you to make rather than what a logical, independent third party would make when analyzing the data. And they also commit the same sin that so many prosecutors do. They basically hide exculpatory evidence. So I'm trying to get a, a conviction on Bill and I've uncovered some things as a prosecutor that indicate to me that maybe I'm wrong about Bill. But I have a really good case against Bill, and I'm more worried about my conviction rate than justice. Happens all the time. And it doesn't matter if Bill's black or white or red or orange, right? It happens all the time. Now, what I'm ob 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 obligated to do by law is to make the defense aware of this exculpatory evidence. But I often just... I didn't see that. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. And that's what generally happens is the media will bring you something like 68% of all New Yorkers now have COVID. And leave out, well, if we figure out how many died, especially if we subtract all the ones that died in elder care facilities because stupid and dumber, dumber and dumber, right? Dumb and dumber, 
Blasio and, and, and Como sent sick people intentionally into those facilities. We backed those out. The death rate even in New York City, which is about as bad as it got, is, is like infinitesimally low. Oh, by the way, if that many people had it, oh, and there's this new thing about T-cell immunity versus just antibodies, so the, the immunity actually is less long. Well, gee, that, that cycle has cycled through. And then we could figure out that it's about an eight-week cycle and that everywhere that this thing shows up, that's what they're going to deal with. We start planning for it. But let's just leave all that out and freak people out with a case count number. See, this is hiding the exculpatory evidence. Here's the good news. Most of that evidence is available if you learn how to go get it. And I'm using COVID as an example because it's the most current thing. doesn't matter. They do it with everything. People aren't really leaving Los Angeles. And then they'll, they'll, they'll give you an interview with like, Two or three yuppie couples are like, I would never leave Los Angeles. This is all crazy. I love it here. And oh my God, look at all the shops down the road. And I wear my rodeo boots and blah, 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 blah. Oh my freaking God. All you have to do, all you have to do, dear friends, is price the cost of a U-Haul from Los Angeles to anywhere in the middle of the United States one way. And then price the cost of that same U-Haul from the middle of the United States back to L.A. and look at the difference. That little project that my nine-year-old grandson is totally capable of doing and going, oh, gee, look at this, you're right, would tell you that it's bullshit. Okay? It's bullshit. It's a lie. Then all one has to do is look at rents, that's all public data, and look at migration patterns. Look at the forecast for property values in those cities from December before there was COVID, so you can't just blame COVID only. Now you know it's a trend aggravated by a pandemic versus a trend caused by a pandemic, and now you can get a better picture of reality. And you can start thinking, gee, if I want to go into real estate, And I want an opportunity here. This is going to play out for a while. I've got some time. I can build up my capital reserves. I can start doing research. And I want to pick kind of one of these middle markets to do my activities in that doesn't rely a lot on tourism and gives people leaving these shitholes what they want. And what do they want? doesn't take a lot. I can tell you from feedback on the blog, but you can find this out yourself. They want some level of social life. Okay, They don't need it to be L.A. social life, but they want something. They want stuff to do. They want a little bit more space. They want more value for their money. But the number one thing they want, badass Internet. Badass Internet. That's the number one thing that they want. With that little package of information right there, and then we do a little research into real estate cycles of the past, what downtrends look like, about where the bottom is, how long they last, how to procure capital during that little thing, And then we do a statistical analysis and we look at it as it occurs. We don't identify the exact bottom. That is trying to play it too close. We identify a zone. And we take our significant activity in that zone and we capitalize it. All while they're telling you it's not happening, you're becoming wealthy in the middle of a recession or a depression because you don't believe their bullshit because you can do math that happens to have percentages after it instead of just X equals. But if you can't do that, then you believe them when they are Baghdad bobbing and telling you there's nothing to worry about. Worry about this thing over here. So, I think I've made my point. This one's kind of important. Nutritional research and planning. It's turning out more and more, 
as we go through all this COVID hysteria, just as an example, that, gee, Jack's crazy-ass advice of all the primary vitamins, A, B, C, D, and E, good multi, and let's bump these things up a little bit more in that core group, a good multi-mineral, it's part of the multivitamin maybe, but a good multi-mineral, quercetin, zinc, was great advice. Because it looks like D is like, it's when you look at the data on D now, it's massive. We have medical schools coming out and recommending basically my protocol with the quercetin and the zinc. That all of that was good advice. And I had so many people say, you're not a medical expert, you're not a doctor, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I always presented the data that, that as though I was not one of those, that I did this information, I took it to scientists, I took it to doctors and said, hey, what do you think? And they said, that's what I, I'm good. now that you presented it that way, I'm going to do that. Why? Why? Because I'm that smart? Or because I knew how to do nutritional research and planning? I knew what to look for. I knew where to find it. I knew how to dig through bullshit to get to facts on the other side. And can I, could I have told you at the time, hey man, it's D. I could surmise that it might be D, but maybe it would have been B. Maybe it is B. Maybe we only see a piece of it so far. I don't know. But that broad spectrum approach and adding an ionophore for zinc and getting the zinc into the cells because you had an RNA replicating virus, and there's a lot of people talking about it now, and there were a lot of people talking about it by, like, May. No one was telling you this in March but me. Not because I'm smart, because I know how to do nutritional research. So research in general, but nutritional research is a little bit different. I think it would be interesting for you guys to kind of give yourself a little homeschool project, you adults. Pick something in nutrition and really research it till you understand it. Um, the data that I brought you from Nurse Amy, she did that research on how certain mushrooms are not only anti-cancer, but they also are have a uh, kind of an effect of reducing the potential of cytokine storms, which is one of the major problems with serious COVID infection. Um, but it's also a major problem for patients on cancer therapies. So, like, that was a nurse practitioner doing research. But then bringing it, and I was able to look at it and figure out, hey, even I'm not going to, I don't care if I like her, she's a good friend and a nurse practitioner, that's not enough for me. I said, I want to see this, I want to see your research, and she sent it to me. And I was able to understand it. I, I'm going to tell you that the, the study she gave me, I looked up at least 20 words in that study. Because I look up a word, and there'd be a new word in the definition, and to fully understand that word, I had to look that word up. I don't speak Latin. Okay? <laughs> Just as one example. and But by the time I was done with it, I had absolute confidence that, boy, this is... And I already kind of knew it, but it was very confirming, and it came from a very scientific level. Why isn't the TV telling you, hey, here's these five mushrooms, and here's all the scientific-backed data, and these in-depth studies that show they lower your cancer risk and they lower your risk of cytokine storm. If You see what I'm saying? Keto. I did a 50-part video series on keto as I lost over 70 pounds. And I have to say that the feedback I got from it was exceptional of people going, you've made this easy to understand. Not because I'm smart, because I knew how to find the information. 
and I knew how to plan meals, and I knew how to figure this out. One of the reasons this is so important in nutritional research and planning is the quality of your medical care is already shit, and it's going to diarrhea. And the cost of medical care is already ridiculous, and it's going to get more expensive. The number one thing you can do for yourself right now, from a medical standpoint, is be healthier. The number one thing that's going to kill people this year in this country that does not have to, I repeat, does not have to, is not COVID. It's not COVID. It's obesity. There will be over 300,000 people that die this year from complications due to obesity. 300,000. No one has to be fat. Anybody that makes it, well, you don't understand. I have the blah, blah, blah. No, you don't. No, you don't. I promise you, if I lock your ass in a room and control your diet, you will not be fat a year from now. There's a bunch of ways to do it. You might want to research one and figure it out. I personally think that a ketogenic or at least a very restricted carb diet and removing processed foods is incredibly important and probably the best way to do it. But if you want to go whole grains or whatever, you better figure out how to do it. Improving your life through nutrition is one of the most important things that you can learn how to do and actually do right now and teach others, including your children, to do. The state is killing your children. We have an epidemic in this country of morbid obesity in teenagers. Let me say that again because your mind should, your, your brain should start coming out of your ears and your eyes and your nose when you realize that that is a fact. We have an epidemic of obesity in teenagers in America. Well, it's all because video games. I'm an 80s kid. I grew up with an Atari joystick in my hand. I played lots of video games. We did not have an epidemic of obesity in the 80s or the 90s. My son grew up with video games. I never really limited his access to video games. I did occasionally kick him in the ass and make him go play basketball. My son's generation did not have an epidemic of obesity. It's the food and the mindset about the food in your country today. And if you have someone who is morbidly obese at 15, saying they have a life expectancy of 60 is being kind. You think 300,000 is a scary number? Keep this shit up for another generation. It's up to you. Save the lives of your children and your grandchildren. Because they're not going to. They're going to pump more corn syrup into the ass of your kids so they can sell them more drugs. And if you think that's a conspiracy theory, you need to go back to, to, to skill five, statistical analysis, critical thinking, and research for five minutes, and you'll figure out it's not. Leads me to the next one, exercise and fitness. I'm not necessarily talking about everybody becoming a Chad that hangs out at Gold's gym and become a trainer. But basic core physical fitness, men and women both as you age, Building and maintaining lean muscle mass is one of the most important things for your health. You know, they always talk about, well, there's these little old ladies in Okinawa or wherever, and they walk up this mountain every day, and they average 101 years of age, and they almost don't have any cancer or any osteoporosis. Let me tell you something. Walking up a mountain is not like running a marathon. Marathon running, long-distance endurance athletics tear down muscle fiber and if you do it enough they tear it down before it can grow back people that walk up to a sacred shrine every day up you know, a thousand steps or whatever they don't get muscle bound but they maintain lean muscle mass that is 
that conjunction with their diet is the number one thing that makes these societies have these long-aged people who get sick and don't die of freaking viruses like COVID. And you can be angered by that, you can be triggered by that, you can be upset by all of that, but I'm sorry it's the way that it is. And I'm a guy that spent a lot of my life struggling with weight. And I ain't doing it ever again. And I think the fact that I've done it and maintained it for about a year now is a solid statement in that. And I encourage you to get on board with it. And not just exercise and fitness from doing it, but the knowledge of it. How to do it. And train your children. If you can train your children now to set good exercise patterns and good diet patterns... Because I'm going to tell you what drives me crazy with some of y'all, and I know I'm about to trigger some people in my audience. I can even see your face on Facebook, your little picture. I see pictures of you doing all of your shit to get in shape, and you're getting leaner and leaner and looking better and better, and your kids are fat. And you're feeding your kids cupcakes. Stop that shit! What is wrong with you? It's okay because they're kids? You know what? You should not have fat teenagers. Your teenager should not be fat. And if your teenager's fat, you're at minimum enabling it. You're at, especially If they don't have a job yet, where do they get their food? Well, they won't eat if I don't... Yes, they will. Hunger fixes that. Have some balls, have some stones, stand up, and make sure your kids eat a good diet and save their damn lives. Because we're heading for a place... That in another 10 years, through this flux, and everybody laying on their ass and being mopey over not how bad things are, having the number one illness in, in the country be diabetes. And, and I'll tell you that I, by my research and statistical analysis, it'll be the number one cause of death. And it'll be driven almost 100% by obesity. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. How about, here, we'll go to something else. Because so, I'm, you know, this one shouldn't trigger anybody anyway. I'm going to trigger the shit out of you today before we're done. Uh, property evaluation and real estate skills. We kind of talked about that with statistical analysis. But you should start shopping for houses even if you don't want to buy them. Get on Realtor. Look in your market. Look what's selling for how much, how long it's on the market, what it's taking to sell. Use things like Zillow. Look up historical patterns of properties. See where they're at now. Look at taxes. Look at tax assessments current and past, look at what makes people buy quickly, look what makes people have a hard time selling, understand the differential so that you can look at a property and say, here's all the reasons this property's not selling. Here's what it costs to fix those, and here's what the property's worth if you fix them. And then here's the estimated time. Now that sounds a lot like flipping houses, maybe. It also might be, this is how I'm going to select the right house to rent to all those people leaving Los Angeles as I become part of my community and marketing, it is a good place to land. Because we have that badass internet, and we have those low restrictions, and we have a low crime rate, and we intend to keep it that way. And we have a social life, and we want it to be better, and when you come, we want you to be part of making it better. That would be just one way to use that skill. There's a whole lot of people going to lose their ass on Airbnb shit in the coming years. And even after COVID goes away, there's been too much damage done. There's been too much damage done. There's people that are leveraged with 12, 14 properties that are 100% funded through Airbnb-type arrangements. It's a good way to go, but you don't over-leverage in one place. Some of those people are going to have to liquidate those portfolios. How do you spot those? How do you spot those? 
I don't actually know. I don't know all this stuff. I know a little bit about all of it. And that's what I'm suggesting for you, too. So real estate evaluation and skills, but also property evaluation. You know, taking a PDC is probably not a bad idea. It's not just how to grow food. A big part of a PDC, especially Jeff Lawton's, and he's got a new one coming up, um, is how to look at a property through the permaculture lens and understand what can be done with it beyond just where you would build a house, but also the location of a, of a dwelling. Or, okay, there's already a house there. and re it's, it's, Maybe it's even a type 1 error. I wouldn't have put it there, but now that it's there, how do I compensate for it? That's just another way of looking at it. There's so much opportunity coming. Be ready. Next, get involved in something with entrepreneurship or a side hustle just to learn the skill set, the knowledge, and the mentality. I mean, all walks, all types of entrepreneurship and side hustles are things that people should be going into right now. And understand, some will probably go away. I think Uber and Lyft survive as long for the opportunity for a driver as we rely on cars that don't drive themselves And like many trends in automation, that one is accelerating too. Businesses, even businesses that are pragmatic and are like, hey, you know what? Every epidemic in society has come and gone. And as this compares to some of the stuff we've been through, it's pretty mild. And it'll go away. They know a couple things are going to happen. Number one, they will continue to manufacture hysteria. I believe that COVID-19 is now on life support. Instead of the patient on life support, we've put the fear-based propaganda on life support to keep people afraid and in their house and wearing their muscles. That's what we've done. But even when that goes away, companies are now evaluating the risk tolerance from what happens the next time some shit like this happens. Now they can say, this is what we're going to do. And the let's say that something like MERS, right, Middle Eastern Respiratory, or SARS-1 happens again. Well, there was no need to lock the country down for those things. They had nowhere near the impact in case count or anything here that they did elsewhere. They were contained fairly well and kept out of the country. But I'll tell you what, if one of those pops up today... They'll go full, ask mass hysteria again. They'll lock everything down. They'll screw up the economy. And companies are asking themselves now, well, how do we make ourselves more resilient when this happens again, if this happens again, however this happens again? And one way is to do as much automation so you're as least dependent on individuals as possible, which is already a mega trend, already in process. So those opportunities may go away. Does that mean you shouldn't partake in them now? No. If you can make an extra three, five hundred dollars a week doing DoorDash and Uber, do it. Go make that money. Put that money away and learn that mindset. And by the way, be smart on how you keep your books and pay very little tax on the money you earn. There's always these things, Uber drivers don't earn that much money. That's because Uber drivers very quickly learn how to work the tax system and report very little income. How much you keep is way more important than how much you quote-unquote earn, and they keep almost all of it because on paper they don't make money. In reality, they make lots of money because most of the deduction is a mileage deduction on the vehicle that doesn't really cost what you're able to deduct. If you don't understand that, I should add how to work the tax system to this somewhere, which you guys know entrepreneurship, that's part of it. 
And part of the entire thing with entrepreneurship is they're going to start squeezing you. They are going to squeeze you. They're going to be like vampires that have sucked every bit of blood they can out of your body. And they just can't get any more, but you're still alive, so there must be some more blood in there. And they pick you up and squeeze you like a sponge, twisting you in both directions to suck every last drop of blood from your body. And of course, when it comes to the state sucking your blood, the blood they suck is your monetary blood. The only defense will be strategic lifestyle choices, cryptography, and entrepreneurship. Because what will stay the same, because some things never change, is the wealthy will continue to make sure that that gone tax code is written with 10% of what you have to do and 90% of how you get out of it. And I'm going to tell you that most of the stuff that's in the 90%, if you are an employee, only does not apply to you. It does not apply to you. I'm going to tell you there are ways to create businesses without changing your life. If I was a salesperson... I would create a corporation called Me Sales Inc. And I would go to my employer and say, I'd like to remain an employee and get the benefits package and all. And I'd like to split my compensation. I'd like to split up my compensation between my base salary and my incentive salary. And I'd like you to pay all of the incentive to my corporation. And some employers are going to go, screw you, we're not doing that. Some employers will go, well, I... I can you invoice us? Sure, I can invoice you. And a whole shitload of your life just became tax deductible. That's one way of thinking entrepreneurially. One. One way. One way. And that's another way where you can talk to an employer and essentially become a contractor and get out of all the bullshit regulations that they don't want to hire you as a contractor for. Because, well, if you're a con, they'll say you're not a contractor because this, this, and that. But if you set up a corporation, you Inc., you LLC, and you do corporate to corporate billing for compensation, which is now corporate to corporate billing, then the coal rigmarole, not for everything, but for a lot of things, no longer applies, and you can get into a more flexible position. See how that works? Now, some employers are going to go, get out of here. Why are you even talking that way? Some will go, hey, this works better for us too. Sure. Sure. The bigger the company, the harder it's going to be. The smaller the company, it's easier going to be. Maybe you come up with that concept, and before you lose your job, especially if you know you're going to lose your job, you approach a different employer with that plan. This is how I'll work. This is what I'll do. I mean, really, I'll be filling the role of an employee, but I'll be doing it in a corporate-to-corporate relationship. Here's how that protects you. Here's how I'm going to protect my own liability. Here's the contract that I suggest we have. Of course, it's open to negotiation. Man, if you bring that to me, I'm talking to you, right? I mean, I might not do it, but I'm going to look at it because I know I've got a special person in front of me. That's not the type of person I normally hire that wants to sit there till the bell rings and go home and get paid by the hour. That person's someone that can make me very, very wealthy if I play my cards. I want a hundred of those. If they can actually do what they say they're going to do. That's just another way to think entrepreneurial. You need to start thinking much more entrepreneurial and develop entrepreneurial mindset and skills. Next, troubleshooting and problem-solving systems thinking. Again, yeah, I'm back to maybe permaculture is a good way to go about that. But you need to start looking at entirety of system versus the thing. So somebody brings you a me- your mechanic. This is where I really got 
the troubleshooting mindset was as a mechanic in the Army. Somebody brings me a, a truck, or doesn't bring it to me, they point to the truck on a line out in the middle, and it doesn't start. There's a lot of things, you know, I immediately think of, well, it could be a battery, starter motor, wire, what have you. There's a bunch of things it could be, and if I know my fleet, I know what it probably, and I know, if I know my fleet to the point where I'm like, what is it, and they're like, it's Echo 321, uh, that truck, I know you ain't surfed the batteries in it ever, and I was out there last week, and it's like, you know, sulfur oxide on the terminals big enough to knock a giant out in the head with, so I know it's probably got dead batteries, right? But in the end, I don't really know. So there's a procedure. Vehicle will not start. Step one. Step two. Step three. And we accept the fact that vehicle is not just something sitting on four wheels, that it's an entire system, and it's an entire group of interrelated systems. And we know that this particular problem, that system starts here, and if we run in this logical process, we will ref go down to the point we find the problem and know the corrective action. you got to look at everything in your life that way from now on. My child's not doing well in math. Will they look at math? No. <laughs> Let's look at the system. How are we attempting to teach them math? Where are they struggling? When did they start having that? See? Also, you start getting a picture. If you can point to the place where the problem began, Not where they went from being an A student to an F. When they went from an A to a B, and then a C. Like, in that piece, something wasn't understood. If we have the freedom as a homeschooler, and we can back up to that place. Whether we do it individually, we bring in a tutor, we have them watch the lesson plan again, whatever. But we go back to that point until that point is mastered, and then start going forward again, we'll solve the problem. We'll solve the problem 99% of the time. There are children with specific learning disabilities and things like that, and we have to take extra measures in that situation. But most of the time, that's all it comes down to. It's somewhere when you have an educational problem, the student, whether it's a college level, grade, you know, grade school, middle school, high school, doesn't matter. Somewhere in the process, they missed the comprehension of something. But they were just good enough to continue forward And then it degraded over time as those things that were not understood compounded on top of each other. And if we just identify the point that that occurred, which is never what the education system does, we can correct that imbalance very quickly. Where did it go wrong? Where did you start struggling? Don't lie. Tell me the truth. Don't be embarrassed. About two months ago. Let's go look at what you were doing two months ago. Even if we bring in a tutor, instead of saying this is where their problem is, because a good tutor would figure this out. But you can shortcut it, and then it costs you less money. It's kind of like writing your own contract, sending it to an attorney to polish it, right? So this is where this is where we're at, but this is where it seems like the problem began. Can we start here? Boom. How many things in your life does that apply to? Everything, friends, everything. Next, the skill sets and the mindset involved with simply remote working, telecommuting, and the skills for the jobs in that area, right? So... When you look at jobs, if you want to telecommute, being a mechanic is probably not what you want to do. I can be a essentially tech support, and even active tech support where I work on your computer. At an operations level, I can do that remotely. I can log into your machine, and it's just like I'm there. I can't replace a piece of hardware that way, but I can identify the hardware most likely that has a problem and direct you how to replace it yourself. I can do that. If your car needs a new starter motor, 
other than directing you how to do it, which is not very practical. I need to be able to touch your car. So if I want to work remotely, I don't want to be going to get my ASC certification in automotive. I want to do something else. So if you want to work remotely, would you have to identify, and I'm not going to give you a list, You got because you got. I don't know what you want to do, but you identify the areas with the most growth and resiliency that are that are predisposed to work well for remote working and telecommuting. And you can look at who's doing it right now, because there's a lot of things people didn't think it worked for. It turns out it does. And then you develop the skill set and the knowledge not only to do it remotely, but for that industry or that sector so that you can now market yourself to an employer. I'm set up and ready to go. Tell you what, I'll work for two days for you for free. That's that's how you go to the front of the line when we're in a recession and everybody's trying to get that job. Tell you what, I'm already set up. Give me stuff that you don't have to worry about it being you know, confidential or something like that. Just some basic stuff. Give me some access. Um, if you have some automated training online or something I can look at, let me look at that so I understand your systems and procedures. And I'll just do it for two days for free. You evaluate my performance, and if you think it's good enough, you can give me a job. If you don't think it's good enough, I'll find somebody else to work for. Again, I'm having the conversation with you, especially if I need people. I might even be like, you know, let's just give you an aptitude test, because that's what's going to happen. And that's already happened. It's going to happen more and more. Like when you apply for a job, a test is going to be part of it. You might want to learn what those tests are like and how to do better on them. Because a lot of times testing is not so much your knowledge, but your understanding of the testing method. That would be another thing that you might want to look at here. Remote working, telecommuting, and the skills and jobs in this area, or combining that with entrepreneurship. Everything I do is remote, even though I'm right here. In that if you move me, as long as I have good Internet, I don't care. If they put a moon base inside a crater on the moon, and they somehow came up with the ability to have cable modem speeds on the moon, my uh, my garden might look a little different, but I could still go, Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, and my money could still roll in. So remote work and telecommuting and the skills that go with them are not always about employment. In fact, I think they should at minimum be a blend of entrepreneurship and employment or full entrepreneurship so that we can go back to that 90% of the tax code when they're trying to bleed you dry. Lastly, technology, especially skills that involve coding, 3D printing, and automation. I think that it would be a great project for you to take on working with your kids as part of a homeschool project or otherwise, to automate as much as you can in your home. And not and maybe start out with off-the-shelf stuff that works like with Amazon Alexa and all, but you know, down to like doing basic coding using Raspberry Pi or something and just figure out how to turn shit on and off or turn it on and off at a certain time beyond just a mechanical timer. There's going to be so much opportunity in this world. There's going to be so many companies that want to automate a portion of what they do that can't afford a big company. So that's another opportunity. There's going to be so much that, I mean, the best way I can describe this is you're going to need to get more done with less in your own life. And my buddy David, who I had present at one of our workshops here a couple years ago, he's been at every one since I met him, but it, he, a couple years ago he did this presentation on automation. And the way he started was a very simple question for the audience. 
What would you do if you didn't have to do it? What would you do if you didn't have to do it? Like, if you didn't have to weed your garden, water your garden, fertilize your garden, and your garden would still grow, and all you had to do was plant it and pick it, would you have a bigger garden? And, like, everybody's head, like, even though they weren't consciously answering the question, like, everybody's head's going up and down. Well, how many other things can you apply that to? What would you do if you didn't have to do it? And when we start coming at it from that way, we start to realize how valuable, we start starting understanding why corporations, rather than just a bottom line, want to move this way. I mean, part of it is employees are a pain in the ass. Employees are, the, the number one thing that made me miserable as a conventional entrepreneur before I switched to what I do now was employees. Even good ones made me miserable. It, 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 you have to deal, when you deal with people, As an employer, you also deal with their problems, and then you also deal with what the state says you can't do and the state says you have to do, even if you and the other person don't agree. So every time I automate a person out of my business, I don't just better my bottom line. I eliminate a potential problem. Maybe he's going to get sick. Maybe he's going to get cancer. I mean, I know you want to have a heart and all, but as, an, as somebody running a company, especially a small company, it hurts. Maybe to the point where other people lose their job because I can't survive now. Maybe he's just not going to show up. I'm telling you, automation is for everybody. And, you know, if you're about to retire, you can participate in this if you want to. But as long as you've done the right things and you protect the wealth you've built and you're going to retire, you get out of the way and you can sit back and watch this happen. If you're going to have a working life for the next 10, 20, or more years, if you don't get some level of understanding in these skills, and specifically automation, it's going to be like the 1980s and you refuse to learn how to use a computer. It's going to be that bad, maybe worse. Because you're going to get into a position where instead of needing to know how to run the automation to have a job, which is how a computer works, You're going to need to know how to install and maintain and build and create the automation to have a job. Or you got to know how to do the things the automation can't do. But the people that are going to make a fortune are going to be the ones that solve that problem. I know you don't think this can be automated. Let me do it for you. That's where fortunes in the technocracy are going to be made going forward. Automating that which is believed to be unautomatable. And that could be you or your kids. Because kids are the ones that are going to really do this. Your 10, 12, 14, 16-year-olds that are learning basic coding and 3D printing and automation right now. Because when they're 22 and all the 42 and 52-year-old people are like, ah, we can't do that. They have 20 ways they can think of to try it. And as long as one works, it's enough. You Also, the 42, the 50-year-old people are going to be the ones that are defending the roost. We dealt with this. One of the products that I used to work with back in my conventional days, back when I started TSP, was a product made by a company called Syrian. And we built basically an artificially intelligence-driven software suite that could replace a couple hundred telecom engineers inside a company like AT&T and do a better job to, with predictivity where we could 
rescue billions in stranded capital that didn't need to be spent, reallocate spending to places that the network is going to fall over, and give them better modeling of their networks than they could ever do for themselves. Everybody we had to sell through was somebody that really wasn't quite keen on it because it was going to eventually cost them their job, or even if they were going to stay, they'd lose an entire team of people they wanted to protect. They were all 40 and 50-year-olds. 24-year-olds don't give a shit. They're gunning for you. And as they start to have the ability to make decisions, they'll automate you out. I'm suggesting that you learn how to survive, thrive alongside of them, or if you're going to be that 22-year-old or your kids are going to be that 22-year-old, make them that 22-year-old. Because that's the skill set it's going to take to survive. My final thoughts today are, again, you don't have to learn all of this. Don't let it be overwhelming. But it should give you a, a very clear picture of what I see coming when you think of the things that I'm most concerned that you pay attention to. This is going to be, I'll say it one more time, these 10 years, 2020 to 2030, are going to be the greatest period of flux and disruption that any living person has ever seen. And they were already going to be. And all we've done is take 10 years and squished it. It's going to come much faster, much harder. Even things that take seven, eight years to happen, the piece of them that will happen in two to three will be much bigger. Like I said, there's going to be some things that we need certain technological leaps to occur for them to be fully realized. And some of those leaps still have some time in them. But the faster you move, the quicker you get there. By 2030, I think 2030, 2035, we'll put people on Mars. But what does that really mean if people in the wealthiest nation that's ever existed are hungry? The truth is it doesn't mean much. But the truth is there's enough freedom remaining that if we grab onto it and make the most of it, If we're starving in 2030, it's our own damn fault. If we're sick in 2030, outside of things that just happen. But if we're generally sick, i.e. obese, type 2 diabetes, we have terrible, it's our own damn fault. If we're easily lied to by the state, it's our own damn fault. And I'm telling you what, you go another 10 years without correcting the dumbing down of this country we will have the idiocracy. In fact, it'll make the idiocracy look wonderful. It doesn't have to be. And some of those people are going to go there. And what that means is you and your kids and your grandchildren, if you refuse to go there, through this period of time, you're going to be in a great position because you're going to have a complete unfair advantage on everybody around you. Again, I'm back to always being a fatalist. You get taken out by a, garbage, a, a gravel truck or a garbage truck tomorrow, metaphorically or specifically. But other than that, you think the way I talk about today. You make these adaptations. You figure out the parts that work the best for your life. You grab them and you make them your own. You expand beyond them. And you see things the way they really are, in spite of the lies that they tell you. And you really can have an amazing life. Times get tough, or even if they don't, but they're going to get tough. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, do consider uh, helping to support this show by doing your online shopping at 
the, uh, at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I talk about growing food today. Uh, my item of the day today are the General Hydroponics Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs. It's hot as hell right now. A lot of things you want to grow are hard to grow outside. Grow it inside. I'm serious. Like right now, growing lettuce out here, you put a let lettuce plant in the ground, and it, it bolts in about three and a half seconds. Bitter, nasty, big seeds, and just, you ain't doing it. A lot of stuff you're not growing inside right now. Also, it won't be that long. We'll be talking about fall gardening. I always do my fall gardening segment about August. People are like, you're crazy. It's so hot. Well, you got to get ready. Starting plants. Develop that skill. And if you can do hydroponics, you can produce food year-round. So it's really a good thing to look into. I got a lot of material on my YouTube channel about that. But I'm going to tell you, the number one easy button I found in all the different ways I've experimented with hydroponics are these rapid rooter grow plugs. They're awesome. Check them out. I get 50 for about 20 bucks. There's definitely an ROI to be had there. There's other ways to do it, but especially starting out and learning, there's a lot of variables, and the more you can eliminate, the more you can focus on developing your skills, and then you know, here's my baseline, and when you've done something wrong in the future, you know what it is. Take that variable away getting started at least. I still use them all the time. General Hydroponics, Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs, some really interesting pictures of some of the things I've done with them in the write-up today, and you can find it at tspaz.com. Another way you can support us, I think a lot of y'all don't think of this as a method of support, but I'm telling you, you are supporting me if you're on my email list because you'll know about things, you'll share things, you'll help us with things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click subscribe, fill out the form, get on the email list, and you'll be able to help support us. Uh, really, really easy, no cost. And consider becoming a member. You can do that by clicking on Members and learning more there. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our Song of the Day. Song of the Day today is by Queensryche, and it's called Some People Fly. I love this song. It's a lot of what we were talking about today. This song comes from a standpoint, it's an older song. It comes from a standpoint of like some people have dreams and they pursue them. And other people, have, like cause everybody has dreams. But some people have dreams and they let other people talk them out of them. They let society talk them out of them. They let pragmatism talk them out of them. No room for it. And today I saved my quote of the day for the end to go along with this song. This is by Tyrese Gibson. A lot of people attribute it to Steve Harvey, but it's by Tyrese Gibson. He said, the dream is free. The hustle is sold separately. The hustle's all on you, man. Dreams are free. Hustles, in taking the hustle, you earn the dream. And maybe you can be one of those people that fly. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Yeah.